0: Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, we had a question come in regarding holiday beers, and when Denny and I talked it over, we realized, for Denny, that's Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter, and for me, that's Falcon's Claws. For this episode, we're pulling together two separate instances where Denny and I talked about his quick turnaround holiday gift beer, and my club's not-so-quick monster lager beer, and that's going to be brewed on December 6th. You got time! So sit back and listen to this reminiscence of these two recipes, but of course first, a message from our sponsors.
1: The Seltzer Sensation is here and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are bladed to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5 percent seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels, Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental and let's give back together.
0: I don't think we never have a discussion about Denny and beer and recipes without talking about the beer that arguably everybody knows from you. Uh, and that would be the Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter.
1: Yeah, this one uh, seems to be real popular with people, especially uh, right around the holiday season. And uh, that was kind of the intent. Uh, I used to make a batch of beer every year that uh, I would give away to people for Christmas presents uh, before I got too lazy to actually do that anymore. One year it was getting close to Christmas, and I was sitting there talking to my wife about what kind of beer to give to people. I decided that, wow, something like a, a barrel-aged Imperial Porter would be nice, but it was close enough to Christmas so that I didn't really have time to barrel-age it, not to mention the fact I didn't have a barrel. So uh, I started kind of thinking about what kind of flavors you might get out of a bourbon barrel. And I decided that probably a couple of the prominent ones would be bourbon, duh, and vanilla. And so that the concept for the recipe was born of that.
0: Now, set the stage for people, because you said I didn't have access to a barrel at the time. When about are you developing this recipe? Oh,
1: man. Uh... I'd have to go look at my notes to be sure, but I would say it was probably close to 10 years ago. Uh, I see here it was batch number 264, but I don't really have a date for it. So let's let's just
0: say 10 years ago. Note failure. Note failure. I don't have them with me. I don't have them with me back then you wouldn't have been able to find a bourbon barrel of appropriate size for most homebrewers. And nowadays you can find five to eight gallon barrels pretty readily from like balconies and Woodenville and whatnot. So at the time, not only were you operating under a handicap of not exactly having enough time, but you're also operating under a handicap of not having a barrel that you didn't have to brew 60 gallons for.
1: Yeah. Right. And you know, and of course I could have gone like the, the chips or chunks or something like that, but I have not had a lot of experience using those. So I would have kind of had to figure it out as I went. So uh, as I am wont to do, I took the easy way out.
0: I I thought that was uh, pragmatic.
1: It was indeed pragmatic. It was uh, back in the days when I was heavily pragmatic, uh, which has led me to being even more heavily pragmatic these days.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the beer itself. Uh, Can you walk people through the recipe?
1: Yeah, um the recipe is 62% pale malt, 8.5% brown malt, and uh, this is a, a, something you need to know about. Uh, there are a lot of malts out there called brown malt, some of them as light as 35 Levabond. You want to look for a 70 Levabond brown malt for this recipe. It is 2.8% crystal 40. It is 5.6% crystal 120. Why two crystals? I don't know, because it worked. It is 14% Munich malt. Uh, I uh, use uh, 10 Levebon Munich malt, generally a darker Munich malt. And it is 7% chocolate malt, which in a five-gallon batch comes out to a pound and a quarter of chocolate malt. Which, Whoa. you know, oh yeah, people are going to say that's excessive, but you know what? That's what makes the beer work because the number one, this beer starts off at about 1086. But the thing you need to know is that it finishes about 1026. People have driven themselves crazy trying to get this beer to a lower gravity and you don't want to do that in this case. At 1026, it is done fermenting. And that's what balances out all that chocolate malt in it.
0: Well, and the bourbon and...
1: Yeah, right. All of which, and the vanilla, all of which adds some sweetness to it, right? It's hopped to about 31, 32 IBUs. Uh, it uses a bittering edition of Magnum and a finishing edition at 10 minutes of uh, East Kent Goldings. Uh, I've never really been sure that that East Kent Golding edition makes any difference. But uh, I'm kind of loath to change anything because the beer seems to be great the way it is. So, uh, you know, why, why mess
0: with it? Real quick, can we go back and talk the chocolate malt? Sure. I know different chocolate malts from different maltsters have different flavors and different impacts. Do you have a preferred chocolate malt for this, particularly since it's such a key component to the beer? In in
1: the past, I have used whatever 350 Loverbond chocolate malt my homebrew store had and had great results with it. I have, since the last time I made this, become a huge fan of the Castle chocolate malt that's about 350. I use that in my No Tie Brown Ale. If I was going to make a, a batch of this these days, that is certainly the chocolate malt that I would go for is the Chateau.
0: And I think the most common three fifty Loveabond chocolate malt is from Breeze.
1: Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's what I was getting from my homebrew shop. And you know to tell you the truth? It it worked great. Use chateau if you can get it. If you can't get it, use the Breeze and it will be fine. Just like you know, the Munich malt in this particular iteration of the recipe I'm looking at says it was Durst Munich malt. But I've had great success in American styles using an American Munich, uh, specifically Great Western. I'm a, I'm a big fan of their 10-Level uh, Bond Munich malt, uh, especially for American styles. Well, I was going to say, I
0: think that works fantastically in IPAs, but that's mean. Yep, yep, I agree.
1: And uh, of course, the yeast for this is uh, why yeast 1450, Denny's favorite, because it has that really nice, rich, full mouthfeel to it that complements everything else
0: about this beer. And did we get into mash?
1: Uh, mash is pretty straight ahead. You just mash at 153 for 60 minutes, uh, like I do for like almost all of my beers, and that's all it takes, a single infusion mash. And like I said, when you see that this beer is not going below... 1026 for a final gravity, you're going to freak out. But don't do that because that is
0: exactly right. All right. So we've covered the, the ingredients and the malt bill so far and the hops and the yeast. So now let's talk about the fermentation and what uh, how you handle that and how long this actually takes to go.
1: Okay. Um, I like to ferment 1450 starting at 63 degrees Fahrenheit. I will leave it at that temperature, probably four or five days. Uh, and then I'll take a gravity reading. I'll assess how much kruisen is on top of the beer. If it looks like I'm past the peak of fermentation, I will crank the temperature up to 70, 72 degrees for a few more days until I reach my final gravity and then I crash it down to 33 for any place from three days to a week or so to help the beer clear. And that to tell you the truth, that's pretty much my
0: standard ale fermentation procedure. Well, I'm still laughing at the idea that you have to clear a porter.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but it's it's true because, number one, it, it definitely makes a difference in the way it looks, even in a dark beer. I mean, you know... P- People say, well, I, I'm making a stout. I don't need to use whirlflock." I, I, I guarantee you that you do need to. A a dark beer, you can still ascertain whether or not it has a bright kind of clarity to it. So I like to do that no matter what what the color of the beer is. The other thing is it really affects the mouthfeel because it drops out a lot of the particulates in the beer. And uh, so you're not getting a, a crunchy
0: mouthfeel to it. So you you give that that period of time during fermentation. When do we get to the bourbon and the vanilla?
1: Right. So after the beer has fermented, I rack it to the secondary with the vanilla beans. This is one of the few times I use a secondary. I just don't want those vanilla beans to fall to the bottom and get buried in the yeast of a primary. The number of vanilla beans to use is always an issue because it's going to depend on the quality of your vanilla beans. If they're kind of old and they feel dried up, you might want to use three to five. If they're nice, new, fresh, juicy ones that have a lot of give to them, you know, maybe two will be enough. I split them lengthwise, run the flat side of a knife down the cut side to scrape out all the seeds and gunk inside. All that gunk goes into the secondary. Pods, I just chop up a little bit, toss them into the secondary also. I rack the beer on top of it. Uh, Again, this is where you have to use your senses and do some testing because it could take as little as three days and it could take as much as a week to get that vanilla flavor into the beer. I'll tell you one thing, and that is that uh, you want to end up with the beer having a bit more vanilla flavor to it than you think that you want because it really fades rather quickly. It'll be the first thing to go. When you think the vanilla flavor is perfect, let it go for a couple more days. Then you rack to the bottling bottle. And that's where you add the bourbon. And as home brewers, we have the advantage of being able to add bourbon that uh, commercial brewers can't do. I uh, have found that 375 milliliters of bourbon per 5 gallons of beer is just right for my tastes. This is not the time to break out your top-shelf bourbon. I use Jim Beam Black, which is around 20 bucks a bottle, I settled on that strictly due to the price, since I am not in any uh, in any manner a bourbon drinker. I knew that I didn't want a very expensive bourbon. I also knew that I didn't want Rotgut. Went to the liquor store. There was Jim Beam Black in kind of a mid-price range. I knew the name Jim Beam, so I gave it a try. To determine the amount, I poured four two-ounce samples of the beer and measured a different amount of bourbon into each one. Then my wife and I tasted all four of those samples, picked the one that tasted the best to us, and scaled that amount of bourbon up to the whole batch size. That came out to be 375 milliliters. So you can either uh, take my recommendation for the amount of bourbon or go through that little tasting process yourself and decide what you want to use. But please do not go breaking out your eighty buck a bottle bourbon for this.
0: See, and if it were me, I'd probably be—I uh, don't know—running with Ten High <laughs> or Rebel Yell. Yeah.
1: yeah. See, and that means nothing to me. But I, I will say that what you are going for in the, in the final beer is an integrated flavor of the chocolatey porter, the vanilla, and the bourbon. And if you use enough bourbon so that you can tell what kind of bourbon you used, then you've probably put too much in it.
0: Either that or you're a whiskey lover. All right. So we've covered the basics of the beer. We've gotten it into, into the bottle. We've gotten it into your glass. We've got it uh, tasted and, and done. How many variants of this did you make before you settled on this sort of final form or did it come out of the gate and you're pretty much just happy with it?
1: Uh, I think that I only did a, couple variations because again I didn't come up with a concept until it was almost uh, Christmas, was probably October or November so I think that I probably did one batch of the base porter tested it added, I think that's why I ended up with two crystals because I added some more crystal to it and cut back the hops a little bit because uh, I didn't want that bitterness but this was one of those beers that you know Took, took minimal inter- iterations compared to some of the other ones I've done. Oh,
0: that's good. And then uh, any other variants that you've done? I mean, now, I mean, obviously you settled on the core BVIP.
1: Yeah. And the, the core porter is a really, really good base for flavorings. Uh, a friend of mine who roasts his own coffee uh, used the porter to make a coffee porter that was just absolutely delicious and uh, I, I one time uh, tried that base porter and put blueberries into it. Because it has such a strong, chocolatey flavor, you needed to use a lot of blueberries. I think that I used between 8 and 10 pounds for a 5-gallon batch. And the blueberry flavor was still subtle, but it was a wonderful, wonderful addition to that beer.
0: And now, how many times do you think you've been served your BVIP?
1: <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, you know, it is really not uncommon at all to be traveling someplace and have somebody, uh, give me some or, uh, have somebody send a bottle to me. I've had, uh, a few versions that were actually aged in bourbon barrels. And, uh, although I'm not a huge fan of barrel aged beers, I thought that they were, uh, really, really well done. I, I can tell you though, that, uh, my friends around here eventually totally burned out on it, and if I threaten to make another batch for Christmas presents, now they start throwing things at me.
0: Well, now you're just going to have to, I don't know, make a Gen Barrel IPA. <laughs> That's a good idea. All right. Uh, any anything else that you think people should know about the Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter?
1: I, you know, I would say that I've pretty much touched on everything. But again, the, the points I'd like to stress are. Don't freak out when it finishes at 1026, maybe even 1028. That's what the beer is designed to do. This is a holiday sipping by the fire beer, so that's absolutely fine. And the other thing that I just want to stress again is that don't add too much bourbon and don't go out of your way getting a really expensive bourbon to put into it. You know, okay, so I know you're a bourbon drinker. I know that you like the good stuff but you're putting it in beer. You're not drinking it straight. So uh, save your money for your really good bourbon to sip and go get the Jim Bean Black to put in this beer.
0: Yeah, no uh, no pappy in this one.
1: I, I certainly wouldn't, you know?
0: All right, well, hey, if uh, you have any questions about uh, Denny's recipe for the Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter, uh, feel free to send him an email at denny@experimentalbrew.com at We will have the recipe listed up on the website and in the notes for the podcast.
1: Uh, what about Falcon Claws, man?
0: So now Falcon's Claws is a beer that I've made for a few years now. It made it on and off because turns out that having a 14% plus lager on hand, you don't drink it that fast. So uh, the beer is based on the idea of Sammy Claws, which is from uh, Castle Eggenberg, uh, originally from Herlemann in Switzerland and legendary beer because they would always brew it on Swiss Christmas, which is December 6th, and the same day they brewed the next year's batch, they released the previous year's batch, so it ages for a full year. This one, uh, the recipe that I have in here that's going to go up on the website, is for five and a half gallons, and it starts at an original gravity of 1140. It is a monster of a beer. It comes in at 14 plus percent uh, ABV. It has a whopping 28 IBUs, Sixteen point seven SRM, ninety minute boil, and it has three malts: thirteen and a quarter <laughs> pounds of German Pills, thirteen and a quarter pounds of German Munich, and an eighth of a pound of Carafa Special Three. And to give you an idea, when we brew this, we generally brew this as a like a twenty nine gallon batch, and so it's seventy five pounds of Pills, seventy five pounds of Munich, and a, a three quarters of a pound of Carafa Three. You eat a lot of malt, yeah. Keep it simple. Single infusion, 150 for 60 minutes. Keep the hops simple. And since the beer is not what I would call a very hoppy beer, after all, it's 28 IBUs in the whole thing, it starts with 0.7 ounces of Magnum at 11.5% for 60 minutes and another 0.7 ounces of Haliton Middlefrew at a whopping 2.8% alpha acid for five minutes. You know, real simple beer, two hop additions, and really get the bitterness in with the Magnum. Get the aroma in with the middle fruit and the middle fruit is just kind of a nice hint. Uh, we use White Lab's 885 Zurich Lager or SAF Lager S189, which is the dried version of that same yeast. A uh, lot of ye- yeast nutrient and a lot of O2. Ferment it at, say, 48 for two months. Loggers take longer. Transfer and then age at lagering temperatures for a you know the rest of the year, so 10 months. And then debut it and pour it out. And in that first year, even it's too intense. It's, it's a massive beer. So it takes time. I find it really comes into its own, like really starts to sing in that three to five year range. So prepare to dedicate a keg to this for a good long while. And I just keep it in the corner of my keg writer, but it's a big beer. It takes a, it takes a, a fair amount of work to do. And again, this is, you know, like a, a an eight hour brew day, but man, you get a, big mammer jammer of beer out of this and yeah we tend to do this with the first runnings and maybe a little bit of sparge and then everything else goes into something in the secondary like say a schwartz beer or maybe like a belgian ale by the way you'll notice that almost always with those secondary beers i tend to go dark and i think denny you were saying that you go dark as well on yours
1: um yeah i I go back and forth
0: well uh, but i find like doing the dark stuff is actually kind of handy because then you can get some dark malts in there maybe you know distract from any sort of second runnings flavors that may happen (laughs)
1: Yeah, right. You just have to be careful if you put too much in that uh, you'll drive the pH down, because remember, a lot of the buffering power of the grain is already going to be used up, so you want to just kind of watch that.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hoped that you enjoyed this look back at Denny's BVIP and my Falcon's Claws. I'm literally starting the starter beer for this year's edition. First time, I'll brew it on my grandfather as well, so that's going to be fun. Now watch out and don't forget that you still have plenty of time to brew a spiced brown or other holiday-feeling beer of a reasonable strength and still have it in time for the Yule. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at Experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentabrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at Dxp Brewing on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and punching a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the Pongo Fun, a food bank for pets in need. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.
1: Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing the pro series hydrometers from brewing america will help you help your beer these american-made nist traceable hydrometers are accurate easy to read and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.